Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Dr. Penny Goldberg, professor of economics at Yale University and former chief economist of the World Bank. In this episode, we follow Penny's journey, growing up in Athens, Greece, and follow her path to Yale University, where she is a tenured professor in the economics department. I learned so much from Penny in this interview and in our prior conversations, not just with her academic work that looks at trade and globalization, labor markets, and discrimination against women in developing countries, but I also learned so much from her personally, as a student, as a mother, as a Greek-American. Her focus on service to society, on improving the world so that it is better off because of her impact and influence, it's really inspiring to me. And I absolutely love her thoughts on what the definition of success means for her and the importance of not understanding the value of happiness in life and what that costs. Penny's perspective inspires me to create more for others. And while you can't have it all at the same time, you can certainly integrate a lot while maintaining a healthy balance. Please enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Penny Goldberg. Penny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Professor Ali Savinsky for connecting us. And I have to admit, I'm uncomfortable calling you Penny. My parents raised me to use a lot of titles when I addressed people. It's not too often that I have former chief economists of the World Bank and tenured Yale professors on my show. So I'll do my best to not call you Dr. Goldberg the entire interview. Please, I think one of the best things about the U.S. is that people tend to be informed. But I understand the difficulty because when I talk to my friends in Greece, we always have this We don't know how to refer to each other. Right. My listeners would have heard a brief description of your background. And so before we get into your tremendous career and your academic research in economics and trade policy and industrial organization, I always like to hear more about the person and where they grew up in their childhood. And so if you don't mind, if we rewind your highlight reel all the way back and start with your childhood and where you grew up. I grew up in Athens, in Greece. I had a very happy childhood, so I think there's nothing very interesting about my childhood. I grew up in a middle-class household. My parents were highly educated. They were engineers, architects. They valued education above everything else. I have two sisters. My sisters and I, we all got a very good education. I stayed in Greece until I was 18, so I went to high school. And then after that, I left Greece and I went to Germany. The why is a long story. I went to a German high school in Athens. And from that high school, it was quite natural to go to Germany for undergraduate studies. I finished my undergraduate studies in Germany. I came to the United States for my PhD. And then I stayed here. Rewinding a little bit, was the transition from Greece to Germany, is that common in high school? Or how did you end up in Germany? What was that like? That's not common. It's actually quite common for Greeks to go abroad because Greece is such a small country that 
first of all, it was not typical to go to a foreign school. So there are some foreign schools in Greece, but it's not very common for people to attend these foreign schools. In my case, because my parents were engineers and generally admirers of German engineering and German music and German philosophy, they sent all of us to a German high school. And then I got a fellowship, so it was natural to go to Germany, even though Germany is not the best country to study economics. So most people will tell you if you want to be an economist, one of the Anglo-Saxon countries, so England or the United States or Canada would be a more natural choice. I didn't know that at the time. I still think it was a very useful experience to be in Germany. It sounds like you knew early on that you wanted to focus on economics as your research. How did you come to that conclusion? Again, in Europe, it's quite common for people to decide very early because you have to. When you finish high school, you have to typically take exams to enter college or university. And at that time, you have to commit to a major. Personally, I always liked math a lot. I was very good in math, but I also liked economic history. I liked history in general. I liked subjects that had to do with people. And economics seemed a very natural way to combine math with history, with the study of humans. That was back in the 70s and the 80s. We all believed that economics was the key to understanding the world and the key to having impact. So for all these reasons, I chose economics. Perhaps one of the ironies is that at the time I thought, if I become an economist, then I will always have the option later on to go back to Greece. Even if I study in Germany, this is not commitment to leave the country forever. Little that I knew, I ended up part of the Greek diaspora. So you ended up going to the best coast, I'm biased, I'm in California, but you end up transitioning to Stanford and studying there. What was your PhD focused on? My PhD was focused on international trade. At the time, the hot topic was the trade tensions between the United States and Japan. So the situation was in some sense similar to what's going on these days between the United States and China. People saw the rise of Japan as inevitable and a great threat to the West. So a lot of what we read today in the newspapers sounds very familiar to me. But my PhD focused on one particular industry, on the automobile industry, and the trade policies of the United States for that industry, how Japan was affected, and how global markets were affected. So I started as a trade economist with a very strong interest in particular markets. And the study of markets in economics is usually the purview of the field that's called industrial organization. Industrial organization studies markets and firms. So I was somewhere between international trade and industrial organization at the time. What did you do after your PhD dissertation was approved? What did you do after Stanford? After Stanford, I became an assistant professor. When you finish a PhD, one good thing about economics, actually, is you have many different options. So you can go to the public sector, you can go to the private sector, you can go to academia. Originally, my dream had been to join one of the international organizations, so the IMF or the World Bank. And in fact, I did get offers from these places. But at the same time, if you do well in academia, if you do well in the PhD, your advisors tend to push you towards an academic job. I ended up going to academia. This is not something that I had planned. My parents valued education very much. They admired professors. They admired the academy, but they were not academics themselves. So I ended up becoming an assistant professor at Princeton. I stayed an academic until I joined the World Bank in 2018. Double-clicking a little bit on your work at Princeton, did it continue to focus on trade and international programs, or was it similar to your work prior to that? At the beginning, it was. So at the beginning, I was very much focused on the automobile industry and particular markets. 
And then little by little, I started shifting from the study of particular markets to more macroeconomic questions, questions about how countries are developed by trade and by trade liberalization. That was partly due to the fact that in the 90s, many developing countries, especially in Latin America, but also India, of course, East Asia, they opened up to trade. They experienced major trade liberalizations. That raised many interesting questions as to how these countries were affected, how the economies were affected. Clearly, there were big effects on growth, but what were the effects on inequality? How were particular groups affected? My research, little by little, shifted from the automobile industry to these more general questions about how trade affects economies. Gradually, I moved more and more towards the field of development. A perhaps more acceptable term these days is that this is the study of low and middle income countries. So little by little, my interests shifted in that direction. And when you were at the World Bank, I was reading an article about how you were recruited there, and it was a former World Bank president, Jim Young Kim. Was he the one that recruited you? This is the one who hired me. Unfortunately, he left a few months after I joined. Your time at the World Bank was interesting. And admittedly, I know of the World Bank and the IMF and those international institutions, but I didn't know much about it in terms of how deep they work and what their missions really were. And I listened to this one interview that Jim Young Kim did, and I pleasantly discovered that I believe it was Barack Obama's mom who had her dissertation, and she's focused on anthropology. But she had this one piece about how the artisanal industry and I think it was in Indonesia, how the risk of globalization would wipe out these workers, but instead it was actually the opposite and how globalization actually gave it a boost. All these things that made me go down this rabbit hole. But for those who don't know much about the World Bank and IMF, could you describe the mission of the World Bank and then also share your experience there? The World Bank originally was founded to help Europe after World War II. As you know, Europe recovered very, very fast. So once this was achieved, not just because of the World Bank, for many other reasons as well, then the World Bank had to change its mission. Its mission became the reduction of poverty, reducing poverty in developing countries. But of course, that creates a very big agenda. I think it's fair to say that these days the World Bank is active in almost every area you can think of for any country. In general, I would say it has two lines of work that the World Bank pursues. One is, as the world says, it's a bank. So it lends money to countries, in many cases, under very good terms, as I said, the concession loans. These go primarily to very low-income countries. These days, these countries tend to be concentrated in Africa. So that's one aspect of its work. And some people would argue this is perhaps not the most important aspect because there is so much capital around these days. If you have a worthy cause, you can always raise capital. You don't necessarily need the World Bank. Its other mission, its other line of work is to create and disseminate knowledge. It serves an advisory function for many low-income countries. Some people would argue, actually, that this knowledge function is more important than the lending function. I think what makes the World Bank unique is the combination of the two. So it's not really a bank and it's not a university. It's a combination of the two. The fact that it lends money gives the World Bank a lot of leverage. So it's a reason that countries would actually listen to the advice, while they may not listen to an academic, for example. At the same time, the fact that it has this access to countries, the fact that it lends money, leads to a research agenda that's unique because it's much closer to the countries. It understands it. The work tends to be much more policy relevant. So here you are, the chief economist at the World Bank and an academic. What was your experience like there? It was a very interesting experience, not always what I expected. In general, I think it's a very good experience for an academic to leave academia for a while and 
go back to the real world and vice versa. I think it's actually good for some of the real world practitioners to sometimes leave policy and go back to academia. One of the big differences that every academic in my position faces is in academia, we can take our time. So if you want to work on a project and understand an issue and come up with a policy recommendation, you can take years to collect the right data, to figure out what methods you need to use to put together a paper or book that's quite robust. In policy institutions, you have zero time. Everything has to happen now. People need answers now, and sometimes it's impossible to give robust answers. In many cases, you have to rely on the accumulated knowledge from the past. You have to use your wisdom, your experience, and so on. So it's a very different work compared to being an academic. And that can be truly fascinating. At the same time, it's often stressful because you have to give opinions. Take, for example, COVID-19. It's a very good example, not from development, but from public health policy. People were asked to give recommendations all the time. When you were dealing with a new virus, there was no evidence. Really, the science was completely new. If you're a scientist, you could afford to spend years in the lab studying the virus. But policymakers have to make decisions in real time. So this challenge is very interesting in the World Bank. The part that's interesting but very unpleasant is all the politics. And I don't mean just country politics that you expect, but also the internal politics. These are never fun in any place. What's the composition of the World Bank in terms of academics versus non-academics? Oh, it's all non-academics, but almost everyone has a very strong academic background. Typically, to get a job at the World Bank as an economist, you need a postgraduate degree. In fact, this is how I got my PhD. I actually wanted to work in one of these organizations, and I applied as an undergrad. I applied for an internship, and some very nice person at the time replied to me, we won't even consider you for an internship unless you are enrolled in one of the graduate programs, and that's how I decided to get a PhD. So most people have, if not a PhD, at least a master's degree. But most of them did not start in academia. They go straight to the World Bank. A small number goes to the private sector first, and then they move to the World Bank. These people also bring a very interesting point of view. When you were younger, this was your dream role and dream institution that you'd want to work with. And you were there for a couple of years before deciding to return to academia. Why did you do that versus staying there for a while? I thought at the time I could contribute more by being in academia than staying at the World Bank. Sometimes the conditions are such that you can actually do a lot and sometimes you can do less. I thought the time was right to depart. What's interesting is the idea that here you are as an academic trying to fact find and do information discovery and all these things and report so beautifully your academic work, but reconcile that with policymakers. How have you found, whether it's at the World Bank or even your work now at Yale, that reconciliation process? It's case by case. There were cases in the World Bank where I felt I was hurt and I did have an influence. And that was mostly the case when I had to deal with East Asian countries. It was a case where you visit the countries, you talk to the policymakers. To give you one example, I remember I went to Vietnam. Vietnam at the time was very much concerned, as many other countries, about the emerging trade war between the US and China. And they wanted to advise how to navigate these tensions. And at the same time, they were wondering, what's our position in the global trade system? We are surrounded by all these countries who are competitors, Malaysia, Thailand, they are very similar to us. And I was trying to explain to them that, you know, there is also academic theories of trade that show that it's actually good to cooperate with these countries. You shouldn't necessarily see them as competitors. I guess Malaysia and Thailand may be very similar in some respects to Vietnam. And you may view them as competitors, but actually, if you collaborate, you can generate a much larger market and you would all benefit, just as you would benefit if you had a larger internal domestic economy. 
I think this is an idea that's quite established in academia. It was not something they had thought about, and it was quite useful to debate this. These were the cases where you feel you really bring something valuable to policymakers. Vice versa, I also think I benefited tremendously from being at the World Bank. And I have one major new research area, which emerged from my time at the World Bank, which is gender. And of course, gender is extremely important, but received very little attention in academia. It has emerged as a major research area these days. I'm particularly interested about the role of gender in development. So if you deal with low-income countries and you see how women are treated in many of these countries, you realize there is this enormous potential that has not been captured in many of these countries. About 50% of the population are not integrated in the economy. I view it as part of my mission these days to actually make this point and explore more possibilities for helping women realize their full potential, but in the process also helping these countries harness this incredible potential. I will continue to track your career and your research at this because that's something I'm personally very interested in. Can you give an example of that work demographically in the sense of name a country, but the idea is 50% of the population is not incorporated. What are some of the potential ideas or solutions to unlock that? One area of the world where this is truly striking is South Asia especially India. And I mentioned India because India has experienced very fast growth. It's an incredible country in many ways. It's a large country. It's grown very fast. Its service sector has grown. It has a group of the population that's highly educated. And yet labor force participation of women is extremely low. In many ways, they are not integrated in the economy at all. If you ask people, why is that the case? Why is India so different from many other low-income countries? Even sub-Saharan Africa is in some metrics better off than India. Then they will say it's norms, it's culture. These are very difficult to change through policy. You can pass laws, you can change laws, but it's very hard to actually change these long-term values that people hold. So I don't think there are easy solutions. To give you one example, I have one line of work that focuses specifically on female entrepreneurs in India. Of course, there are very few female entrepreneurs. There are very few women who are active in the labor force to start with. But what we show, joined with Gaurav Chiplunkar, who's from India, we show that actually firms that are run by women tend to hire more women. There are many reasons for that. It's a fact that comes out very strongly out of the data. And that means when you promote female entrepreneurship, this is, of course, very good for the female entrepreneurs, and there are many good things about it. But one positive aspect of this promotion is because women entrepreneurs hire more women, you also tend to increase female labor force participation. There are small things you can do to actually help women. Another one was the use of technology in creative ways. For example, cell phones or access to the internet have been shown to benefit women tremendously in many low-income settings, even though women still, on average, have much less access to digital technology than men do. Is your gender research specific just to India, or is it global with a slight emphasis on South Asia? So there's this one paper that's on India. There was another project that we did in the World Bank where we actually created an index. It's the Women, Business, and the Law Index that collects information on laws across the world and tries to identify cases where the laws discriminated against women. This is legal discrimination. This doesn't refer to actual discrimination as practiced in real world, but just in the books, just in the legal domain. It identifies how women in many cases are treated differently from men. This is a whole other podcast that I could go down this and ask you hours and hours of more questions, but 
back to your experience at the World Bank and then returning to academia, which program or what university did you decide to return to? Yale was my home institution when I left the bank. Actually, I didn't leave Yale completely, so I took leave of absence. When you asked me why I returned, I mean, part of the deal was that I leave for a few years and then I go back. I had not given up my position, so it was very natural to return to Yale, and I'm happy I did so. When you returned from the World Bank back to Yale, was your research changed in a sense? What was the transition back to Yale like? This research agenda on gender, I engaged with that after I returned back from the World Bank. Another area that I've been pursuing for quite some time now is what we call informality, so the shadow economy in many developing countries. So the fact that there is this whole sector of the economy that's invisible to the government. How do we deal with that? What are its implications? I also have a lot of work on the recent trade war between the U.S. and China. I wouldn't say that this is something that was inspired by the World Bank, but of course, any policy issue has direct relevance for many of the countries that are shareholders in the World Bank. When you compare and contrast the situation we're in now in terms of global trade tensions, specifically to the U.S. and China, and you had mentioned how it relates to and is very similar to back in the 80s and 90s, the U.S. and Japanese tensions. Can you share your thoughts there? Yes, I find what's happening now actually quite disappointing. It's by no means unique. We've seen backlash against trade and globalization and the closing of the borders. We've seen that so many times in history. We thought we were beyond that. The 90s were the age of hyper-globalization, where the world economy became much more integrated. And I would argue there were huge benefits to the world from this integration. Clearly, a lot of this benefit accrue to high-income countries like the United States and Europe, but developing countries also benefited tremendously. When people started talking about tariffs and the return to protectionism in the 2016 electoral campaign, no one really took it seriously. Everyone thought this is what people talk about during the elections. And then once the new government is appointed, people will forget about it. So then the wave of tariffs came. That came as a surprise to almost everyone. Most of us thought, okay, this is just temporary for the government to show that they were true to their promises. But then the tariffs were there to stay. Worse than the tariffs is the whole rhetoric when it comes to how the United States deals with China, more generally how it deals with imports and immigration and so on. And many of us also thought that with a new Biden government, this would be the end of it, but actually it's not. So we see, especially the United States, but not only the United States, we also see that in other countries, we see this emergence of economic nationalism which to a certain extent is hard to understand because prior to all this, there was enormous increase in per capita incomes for these countries. There was prosperity. Unemployment in the United States was at an all-time low. So it was not a time of hardship. We were not in the Great Depression. What drives all this is the fact that inequality has increased enormously, or at least the perception of inequality. Even though in absolute terms, people live better than in any other time before us worldwide, There is also the feeling that I'm not going anywhere, that the kids are worse off than the parents. And all this has generated enormous tensions within our countries. This is what's so special about our time. What's special is not that we see this backlash against other countries. What's special is that we see this backlash when we are also rich, when we have so much that we should be happy about. That's what makes the current situation unique. How much do you get involved with the policymakers, whether it's with tariffs or other trade policies? How much does academia now, outside of the World Bank, from your seat, get involved with policymakers? I think in recent years, very little. And this is something new. 
So first, in the United States, academics have always had less say than in other countries, and perhaps they enjoy less respect. <laughs> People talk of the ivory tower, so compared to other countries where academics are much more integrated in policy. So I think that was always the case. But until recently, I think there were many academics at the more senior stage of their career who would move from academia to policy or would act as advisors. We see that happening less and less, and that's very unfortunate. Especially in recent years, academics went back to academia doing what they always did best, namely research, but often abstract research. Policies focusing on the policy issues, there is very little interaction between the two. Can you share some of your current research right now in terms of what projects you're working on today? You'd mentioned a bit of the gender research that you're doing, but I'm curious if there's anything specific that you can share. I'm doing some work on the effects of the trade war on other countries, so countries other than the U.S. and China. What we find is that the trade war increased trade between what we call the bystander countries. In many cases, it created new opportunities for all these countries. So you can also have a view of the world where we don't have the end of globalization, as many claim, or the end of trade, but we just see a shift from the U.S., from China, from the superpowers to the rest of the world. And we see many other countries emerging as trade centers. That's potentially a positive message about how perhaps the rest of the world (laughs) may benefit about what has happened in the last few years. That's one line of research. My other line of research is, I already mentioned, on the shadow economy of the informal sector in developing countries. And then I also have a new line of research that looks at the effects of internet technology, more generally the effects of digital technologies on development, especially in low-income settings. I will make sure to link your website with all your research in the show notes. You were born and raised in Greece, and you've traveled the world with a lot of your research. Are able to see both European perspective, U.S. perspective? I'm curious how much of your research is influenced or impacted by the fact that you are Greek. That's a very interesting question, and I haven't thought much about it, to tell you the truth. I think our perspective of the world is very much influenced by our identity. Definitely the fact that I grew up in a small country influences my perspective on the world. To give you one example... In the U.S., trade is considered a not particularly interesting field because the U.S. is a large country. It doesn't need international trade. Of course, international relations, international trade are beneficial to the country, but the United States would also be fine without trade. To a certain extent, you can say the same about China. It's a huge country. If you come from a small country like Greece, you have a very different perspective on these issues. And you realize that a country like Greece cannot exist without connecting to the world around it. So when I deal with countries other than the large ones, when you deal with small countries in Africa or Asia, I think being Greek gives you a much more realistic perspective of what the situation of these countries is compared to people who have not grown up in such countries. I think that has been quite important. That said, economics has always been a field that was centered on large economies, especially the United States. If you come from a small country like Greece, you're completely uninteresting to academic economists for the most part. The incentives are simply not there to do research directly related to Greece, simply because then you cannot publish. Whatever paper you write is going to be interesting to the 10 million Greeks and no one else. It's very different when you do work that focuses on the US or large countries, China, India, and so on. So this is one disadvantage that you have. On the other hand, there are many small countries. So the union of them is a large part of the world. Your application and experience then at the World Bank, I'm sure parts of that are impacted. 
I didn't realize how the IMF is structured, how the World Bank is structured. I didn't know that every president of the World Bank is U.S. And that's just a legacy thing. But embedded in that, to your point, is the perspective. If the president of the World Bank is U.S. and the largest funding is from the U.S., how that has this ripple effect, intended or unintended, whether it's with the leverage and the politics behind all of that, that's a whole other psychological case study. It certainly has huge effects because the major shareholders in the World Bank are the richer countries. So, of course, they have more say. To a certain extent, this is understandable. They're the ones who give the funding. On the other hand, I would say that the World Bank is better than any other institution in putting some effort in understanding the small countries' perspectives. At the World Bank, you can have a report or a paper on Togo, a tiny country, and it will have value within the World Bank. That's another advantage of being there. Such a report would be completely uninteresting to most academics, just because the the place is so small. So I would actually give the World Bank some credit for not forgetting about these countries that are really tiny. Relating to global trade and your research there, but with the lens of being in the U.S., about 70% of my listeners are in the States and 3% is international. Can you share your thoughts on the positive and negative impacts for global trade for the U.S.? To your point earlier, because we're so large, we don't necessarily, as the U.S. versus the World Bank, think about smaller countries. And certainly with more of a political focus on that in the past five or six years, think that it should be more focused on the U.S. versus smaller countries. How do you think about global trade as it relates to the U.S. and why people in the U.S. should care about it? First, let me say that when it comes to international aspects of the economy, for the U.S., probably immigration is more important than trade. It is a country of immigrants. After all, (laughs) we are all nth generation immigrants. Immigration has been crucial for this country. It actually gives us license to make more mistakes than any other country. You can make big mistakes in the United States, and as long as your borders are open to the most able, to the most ambitious people around the world, you can always recover. I think there's no other country in the world, probably, that has this advantage that the United States have. But that's immigration. When it comes to trade, why should the United States trade? I see two reasons. So one is maybe in any particular year, there are no huge benefits from trade. But dynamically down the road, trade exposes you to more competition. You have to stay on your toes. You have to make sure you're competitive. You produce at lower cost than your rivals. And this is a good thing. It fosters innovation. It fosters creativity. It's very hard to pin down this effect empirically. It's very hard to measure it. But this doesn't mean that it's not there. The second reason is more indirect. We live in a world that's interconnected, and the United States, like any other country in the world, has or should have an interest in seeing the rest of the world doing well, too, for the simple reason that when the world falls apart, we are affected indirectly. So see what happens when there is crime in Latin America. We face a huge surge of immigrants. The same happened in Europe. Now, in the United States, having the oceans helps a little bit with these immigration pressures. In Europe, the pressure is much more felt compared to the United States. But this is just one example. When the world around you falls apart because there is no growth, because there is no hope for the future, perhaps not this year or next year, but down the road, we're going to face the consequences. For that reason, we should all be interested in making not just our own country, but the world as a whole a better place. I hope that to be true. And I hope that more people who especially listen to this think more deeply about that. I certainly will. In our prior conversation, you talked about your parents and in particular your dad, how much he's seen in the world, whether it was a civil war, poverty, World War II, and that in our generation, largely, we've seen a relatively very peaceful time. With your work historically, and then also certainly now, but with the lens of your parents and also now for you as a parent yourself, 
How do you think about it all? There's so much inequality in the world and you focus on trade, which really is just talking about balance and leverage around the world. There's so much to unpack in that. I would just love to hear your perspective now. My dad is approaching 98 years of age. So he's really lived through everything. He's lived through World War II, a very ugly civil war in Greece afterwards, losing everything during the war, poverty, then making a life for himself again, raising a family. So right now, nothing can shake him. You know, it's COVID, fine. It's going to pass one day. So he has a great philosophical attitude towards life and keeps going and cherishes every moment of life still. Sometimes I compare him to the younger generation, where by some metric, they have everything one can wish for. And I don't mean only material possession. Now I'm talking about the rich part of the world, of course. I'm talking about the United States or Europe. This is not everywhere the case. But within the United States, the average young person not only has solved the subsistence problem, but on average, they also have very understanding parents and accepting society. We are much more open-minded at accepting than any other time. And yet you see people being under enormous pressure and not being able to enjoy what they have. Mental illness is the major challenge of our times. And this is not a concern that you can just dismiss. Even in the context of economics and global trade, what's really so surprising, it's not that we have these tensions, but we have these tensions when we all thought we were at the peak of prosperity, when we had solved our major problems of subsistence. That shows to me that people care not only about absolute standards, absolute quality of life, but very much about relatives, about where they stand in the hierarchy. Also, they care about the future. They want to have hope for the future. They want to be able to see the next step. And sometimes you think with the next generation, they don't know what's next. They don't know what to strive for. And that's a very difficult situation to be in and one that we are not familiar with. I am so inspired by your perspective and your research. I could ask you a thousand more questions on this, but I will save you a lot of that time and then pivot to the questions I ask everyone, starting with who or what inspires you? I cannot say that there is a particular person who inspires me. In general, if you ask me what keeps me going, I would like to leave a world behind that's a better world for my children. There are moments in life when you get disappointed that you think everything is going downhill. And then I think to myself, I've made my mark. It's not fair to just turn your back to all this and let the young generation face all these challenges alone. So I would like to do my best to actually make this a promising place for the next generation, an evolutionary perspective of the world. I would like to have the feeling that the world is going upwards, not downwards. Well, that's inspiring in and of itself. Did you have a mentor or role model growing up? It sounds like your dad is a really wonderful figure from that perspective and your mom too with that lens. But did you have anyone that was really your role model? Not really. I cannot say that I had any mentors or my advisors at Stanford were only slightly older than I was or more experienced. But down the road, I've had many wonderful colleagues that I found inspiring. By the way, I think that's perhaps the subject of another podcast. But one challenge many women have of my generation, it was very hard to identify with the specific person because there was no one in my situation. I was one of the very, very few women who were academics, who were economists. And People don't always realize the small challenges you face. How do you conduct yourself? How do you present? How do you answer questions? Usually, subconsciously, we identify with someone, we try to imitate this behavior. Now, I never had anyone when I was making my career to do that. But I would say expose one person that I truly admire these days, Esther Duflo, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist, actually the only woman who has ever gotten the Nobel Prize in economics. 
I have found her behavior to be truly inspiring in every respect, not only in terms of her intellect, which is truly amazing, but also in how she has conducted herself. I mean, she managed to rise and make an incredible career, but without stepping on corpses, while being an incredible mentor, helping her students, contributing to the public good enormously. So I think she's a truly inspiring figure. Well, I'm going to add you on top of my list because there's not many tenure professors at Yale who are women. And when you think about your role and your seat and your ability to impact not only as a professor, but also in your body of work, it is truly tremendous. And so you leap to the top of my list in so many ways. You've done so much research. You've worked at the World Bank. You're also a mom. You've balanced and integrated a lot into your life. What are you most proud of? I'm actually proud of the fact that I have managed to juggle all these different balls. I never admired one-dimensional people. Maybe I admire their achievements, but often such achievements are made at a very high price. Balance is something that I value in life. and I tend to be drawn more to people who can be great intellectually and great in their work and their profession, but also have a happy family life and are decent human beings. I try to do that, and I think I've done a fair job on that. There are some things I might have done better in retrospect, but overall, I'm happy with my life. Achieving a state where you are actually satisfied with your life is important. We shouldn't understate the value of happiness these days. A thousand percent. I've gotten some critiques of the show from good friends and listeners and colleagues who say, Ian, I love these profile stories or these personal journey stories that you highlight. And some of them don't have failure in them or they don't have clear struggles. Your body of work and your research focuses on inequalities and a lot of that type of struggle. But for you personally, so far, we haven't talked about it. And so if you can share one of your biggest struggles or failures that my guess is inevitably has led to growth. I may be one of these people that your show is criticized for in the sense that I don't think of my life as having one big failure moment or tragedies. I've been very lucky in life in the sense that I grew up in a very nice environment. I had a pretty smooth life. But I think when the critics of your show may underestimate is that small, continuous failures are equally important. There is no person who has only successes in their life. On a daily basis, we are faced with ups and downs. I think success in life is determined by how you deal with the failures and how you deal with the downs. And I think we've all had difficult periods in our life. As an academic, what I'm going to say will sound totally ridiculous to someone who's not an academic, as it should be. Because in the grand scheme of things, you think that's your problem. For me, that was my problem. If you submit a paper to an academic journal, it gets rejected. For you, it's a major failure. It's a tragedy. I don't even mention it because to a normal person who is trying to make a living, this would seem totally ridiculous. Especially if you have tenure, you have a tenure job, you have job security. And yet when you get a rejection from a journal... You are for a day or two or even more, you are completely depressed. And there is something good about it because then you try to make the paper better and you try to respond to the referees and that keeps you going. The way you respond to this rejection is what ultimately is going to determine your success as an academic. There are tons of such examples on a daily basis for everyone. What does success mean for you? To me, it means a balance between professional success, personal success, service to society, and also personal happiness. That's what I consider to be a successful person, a person who manages to check all these boxes. It's the service to society or service to others that is so impactful and largely forgotten in many ways. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Before I ask my very, very last question, is there a book or a series of newsletters or authors that you've really liked for anyone listening to this who didn't know much about economic trade policy or your research, but want to get to know more? 
Is there any references that you would recommend people to to learn more? I routinely write for the Project Syndicate. I have a bi-monthly column where I try to write my thoughts, to present my thoughts on various topical issues in a way that's accessible to a broad audience. For a broad audience, that's the most accessible way. Great. I'll make sure to link Project Syndicate to the show notes as well. And last question is, what's next for Dr. Penny Goldberg? Again, I'm in a very happy stage of my life where I don't have to be stressed about the next step. So I'm back in academia. I really enjoy my work and my research very much right now. The biggest project that I have in the works right now is we are starting at Yale a new policy school, the Jackson School. So in an effort to bridge academia and policy, the next couple of years, at least, all my efforts are going to be focusing on launching the school, on playing a role in the school. I very much hope that we're going to succeed. And by the way, Oleg Tsevinsky is the other faculty member who is participating in this effort. So we are together in that. Well, I am looking forward to hearing more news about the Jackson School. And one thing I've heard about through the years and certainly believe is that you can't be what you don't see. And I am inspired by you. And I hope that people who are listening see that your background and your work is so tremendous, but also that they could be someone like you. Thank you for sharing your story and being on my show. Thank you very much for having me and for all your kind words. 